Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And this is Weird House Cinema's second holiday season, but this is going to be the first time we're actually going to be talking about a holiday film. Uh, I don't. Robot Jocks is a holiday film. Well, it Robot Jocks feels like Christmas, uh-huh. uh, and we've we've had a few films like that that feel like Christmas, but they're not really a Christmas movie. They're not set at Christmas, and I mean, and to be clear like this movie is not about christmas uh, but it is uh, it is it is a film that takes place during the holidays um now now i should well I wait should, does the does the die hard logic apply i know people like arguing about this on the internet I, i've never actually gotten into it about that but yeah i mean i don't have a, a strong opinion about that but i guess it it depends on on what the holiday is doing in the film right and um and, and I don't even care whether people decide to label this, that, or the other a, a holiday film. But of course, you have you have films that are very much about the holiday. Uh, things like you know adaptations of A Christmas Carol, uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, all, all that that kind of stuff. And of course, those are holiday films. And I should say that some of some of my favorite holiday movies are are certainly weird and, and prime contenders for the Weird House treatment. But uh, but I thought we might go with an entry this. Uh, week from that surprisingly large subgenre of holiday horror uh, with a strong emphasis on uh, Christmas time horror films in American cinema. You know, I would have assumed because Halloween is one of the most copied movies of all time that the the Christmas horror slasher film arose as one of the many Halloween copycats, like Friday the 13th. I mean, I think that was pretty clearly an inspiration behind Friday the 13th. It was like, hey, here's a real, you know, here was a successful movie about a guy with a knife and it's named after a day. Let's do another movie about a, <laughs> a knife wielder running around named after a day. Uh, so you would think that was true for Christmas films, but actually the first Christmas slasher film predates Halloween. Um or at least as far as I know, right? Because uh, Black Christmas came out in 1974. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those uh, you know, early days slasher films, I think, that's considered as sort of a, almost a proto-slasher film. Things were just getting started. Um, I got to say, I, I don't love it, though. I watched it years ago and just found it uh, kind of boring and unpleasant. I, I much prefer Halloween, even if yeah. it came later. It's, it's the real, uh, it's the true progenitor here. Right, and in Halloween, it makes sense at Halloween, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's that's where we get into the kind of the enigma of the Christmas horror film. Um, I think the just the, the just the idea of it even fascinates me because I have a very strong memory of being a child wandering the halls of the local VHS rental store and seeing the posters and box art for various Christmas horror films, especially stuff like Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night, but even stuff like <laughs> Gremlins. Um, and seeing that stuff and just feeling like, well, this, this is wrong. This, these films should not be, uh, because even though my family made a big deal about, uh, about, you know, about Halloween, we did all sorts of Halloween stuff, but then, you know, we got into Christmas and as a child, especially, you know, Christmas is a special time. And I, I just, I wanted it to be this, like, you know, this pure good thing. And it just felt wrong that there were these movies, uh, jumping in there and trying to make it uh, grim or nasty, you know? Oh, wow. I don't remember having that feeling at all. I definitely remember being both intrigued and actually, I think 
I, I could be wrong in having this memory, but I sort of recall finding it humorous, like looking at the cover of Silent Night, Deadly Night and seeing like the Santa suit arm with the axe and thinking that is funny. Uh, my my little seven-year-old brain doesn't quite know why it's funny, but I'm prowling through the R-rated section of the Turtles video where I'm probably not supposed to be. And mm-hmm. this this is funny. I wonder if part of it, for me anyway, maybe for other folks out there, is that at, at Christmas time, you know, sort of the, the the typical American holiday season, you have this, um, you know, th- there's this this uh, increased um, emphasis on the mythology and the fiction of the holiday, and in this uh, this idea that especially children should be allowed and encouraged to believe in it, mm-hmm. uh, even past the point where their reason has actually kicked in and they're seeing the truth for what it is, and and so you know, th- therefore. Perhaps these 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 obvious horror inventions they kind of mess with it, you know, because you're already having this crisis of belief in your own little head about the existence of Santa Claus, and if Santa Claus is perhaps not real, then then what about the baby Jesus? What about the rest of it? Is only mm-hmm. half of it fake? Uh, you know, so you're going out, you're having this big crisis of of belief, and then here somebody else is is making up this uh, this story about killer Santas or whatnot. Well, the other way to frame it is when you're seven years old and you still believe in Santa Claus, seeing the the concept of a horror movie where Santa Claus is wielding a bloody axe seems vaguely blasphemous or at least carries some kind of uh, blasphemic weight. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely say so. That that was exactly how I felt about these films growing up. Is that th- these these this just blasphemy? It should not be. I mean, I didn't try and like you know destroy the boxes or anything, but I was like, nope, not for me. And I have to say, some of these films are still not for me. But I've gone back and watched some of them, and I I, I appreciate. I mean, it's the interesting thing about it is that it has not stopped, and it, when it will not stop, you're going to keep having uh, horror related. Uh, uh, Christmas movies and holiday films coming out. And I I think maybe we've gotten better at it because I Mm -hmm. think we've had maybe an awakening uh, in in American culture anyway regarding like – how our Christmas stories and wintertime traditions work that, you know, the realization that, that the, the sort of uh, department store Santa Claus vision of the holidays is one that was highly sanitized. And mm-hmm. it had, you had things like, uh, you know, child eating trolls and Krampus removed from it. You had, uh, you, you removed the, the hostile winter aspects of the, of the, these holiday traditions. And so the more that you realize that, yes, the, this is supposed to be a time in which there is darkness and the promise of light, uh, it makes more room for, in, in a way, almost more honest explorations of that. And sometimes, and I think more fun, you know, things like, uh, what's the, the the Santa Claus monster film, Rare Exports, that came out several oh, years ago. yep, that's a great one. Yeah, like, like that, that, that's fun. And, and it, Yo Pookie, and, yeah. Yeah, and watching that didn't, like, trigger any, like, childhood Santa Claus blasphemy warnings for me, you know, it just felt like a fun monster flick. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I will say of that early crop of uh, Christmas or, you know, any general solstice uh, horror uh, themed movies, the only one I really love is Gremlins, like uh, Black Christmas, Silent Silent Night, Deadly Night, all that stuff doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, I mean, Gremlins has its own problems, uh, but uh, but at least it was trying in on the whole to be fun whereas mm-hmm. i think some of these earlier films were just kind of like uh like here here it comes nasty christmas yeah. here comes your here comes your horror christmas you like your christmas well how about some murder in your christmas you know um yeah. and i think it's just it's progressed as a as an art form since those days 
And part of that might be that, you know, we can look back on those films as being kind of like a, almost kind of a, you know, an anti-establishment uh, statement, you know, sort mm. of striking against the, the, the corporate purity of the traditional American holiday season. And, uh, and I think that's, that kind of leads into another reason why we keep having these films, because on one hand, yes, the darkness has always been a part of our winter festivals, and therefore there's a desire, I think, in us to have it uh, in our, our modern festivities. But on the, the other end of things, I feel like if, if Christmas and the holidays, if it's all feeling too fake, too purified, too forced upon you, um, a, a Christmas horror film is a way of sort of releasing the pressure. It feels mm. like a way to rebalance everything, you know? A 90-minute Hot Topic t-shirt of uh, just <laughs> rebellion against norms and society. Yeah. And that's also like a huge reason, I think, that you see the, uh, Christmas thrown into movies like this, you know, because the juxtaposition of Christmas alongside monsters or mayhem, uh, blood, or even, you know, mm -hmm. an action movie situation like Die Hard, um, you know, it can, it can just be a way to get a reaction out of the audience and to make everything a little more novel. No, I feel like that's especially the case of the uh, more, uh, I don't know, irreverent or maybe uh, at least latently satirical Christmas horror films. I guess it's a kind of different beast altogether if you make a Christmas horror movie that itself take, is very serious or takes itself very seriously. Uh, well, this brings to mind Ridley Scott's uh, Prometheus movie, which had some very... Uh, <laughs> you know, serious-minded uh, themes in it that it was trying to, to bring across, and then also had Christmas stuff in it. And they what? seem to be genuinely that. trying to, like, a, make a connection there, you know? It's like, um, it, it may be trying a bit too hard. I totally forgot about Christmas being in there. What, what, what's Christmas about it? It's just, it is Christmas on the spaceship, and they have, like, a Christmas tree or something. What? Unless, I I, unless I'm this completely <laughs> misremembering that. I believe that Prometheus is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Let's go to the tape. Consume shakes with high caloric content. What the hell is that? It's Christmas. Need the holidays to show time. It's still moving. Mission briefing is about to start, Captain. Might want to make it way down. Well, I haven't had any breakfast yet. But but we're not talking about Prometheus today. We're uh, we're talking about a, a different film entirely. We had a number of holiday horror films to consider, but we ended up going with one that neither of us had seen before, uh, but had built up something of a reputation for weirdness, and that's 1983's Bloodbeat. Where did you find this thing? This this movie is so weird; it made my toenails curl. What? <laughs> where did you find this? Uh, I, I believe earlier in the year, I was looking through just like a database. Maybe it was it was on Internet Movie Database, of course. Uh, but it might have been something on like a Wikipedia where I was just looking at different genre films from different uh, decades. And I noted that this one ha had been flagged as being a holiday or Christmas movie. Uh, so I was like, okay, holiday, Christmas slasher, I'll put it in. And, uh, and maybe we'll come back to it when we get closer to the holidays themselves. And then mm -hmm. when I started looking into it a little bit more, I, well, I watched the trailer, which we'll get to, and that, that kind of sold me. And, uh, and then also, uh, Michael Weldon in one of his psychotronic books, uh, he had it listed. He, it was one of his sort of neutral listings where he didn't, he didn't passionately, um, uh, promote it, but he also didn't say it was bad. He just said it was a confusing movie with, quote, dream sequences, magical powers, nudity, and blood. Well, I'd say that's a mostly correct description, especially on the confusing part, because the, I, I 
paid close attention to this film and I do not understand what it was about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling you and I have thought longer and harder about the meaning, uh, the true meaning of this film. Uh, more than than most people, um, but but Bloodbeat, uh, one word by the way, Bloodbeat uh, has a lot of things going for it. Uh, for starters, it's uh, it's not nearly as all in on holiday sacrilege as most Christmas films are. So this one's not about making you feel bad about the about the holidays or anything. Uh, so I don't know. I, I liked it a little more for that. Uh, secondly, it's a Wisconsin movie, and I think that makes for our first Wisconsin movie. Uh, yeah, this movie has uh, a, a fair quotient of, of dub bears type guys wearing flannel <laughs> and trucker hats and, and having, uh, you know, g- good mustaches. It's uh, it's it, this movie. It's it's got bratwurst and uh, and, you know, cheese curd just kind of flowing through its veins. <laughs> and it's enough to make you think, well, this must be, you know, Wisconsin indie film. Everybody in it's from Wisconsin. Uh, the director who we'll get to in a bit, though, uh, is French. But I'm not going to allow this to be considered our first uh, French movie that we've watched on Weird House Cinema. We've got a, there are better choices to, to, to really represent French weird cinema. Okay, so what we've established so far is this is a Franco-Wisconsinite indie Christmas horror film that uh, – what subgenre of horror would you put it in? Maybe um, uh, psychic slashers? Yes, I think psychic slasher would be uh, – would be accurate. And, uh, and I'll tell you another fun thing about this is that in similar to films like troll two and spookies that we've, we've looked at on the show before, uh, it involves mostly people who really didn't do anything or at all or, or, or anything else besides this picture in terms of, you know, other film appearances, Mm -hmm. which, um, which can be in, in a way it can be, um, kind of liberating like i love you know making these connections to other films and uh, you know thinking about oh what were they in? what were they in? and you go into it too at times and you're like well if nothing else i know well peter laurie is in it so he's going to do something interesting that that sort of thing mm-hmm. but with a movie like this it can feel like it just came from another universe or maybe that it's that, like it's not a film at all but something real you know in keeping with the psychic theme, I would say this movie feels like a dream somebody had about a movie that didn't exist, except they managed to project it, like psychic photography, or the, uh, <laughs> what was that? We talk, we did an episode on the, the yeah, supposed yeah. Uh, phenomenon, like projected thermography, people just printing their dreams and imagery on, uh, on, on uh, photographic plates. Um, I, I don't think people can actually do that, by the way. But but yeah, just imagine that happened for somebody's dream, and it was the kind of thing where while you're watching it, you just accept because it's a dream that oh yeah, these are actors I would know. But then of course, when you wake up, you're like oh wait a minute, those aren't people. They they, <laughs> they, they came out of my subconscious. Yeah, and you know th- this would probably be worth looking at even if it was just like a just a whole bunch of non sequiturs. If it was just like one weird dream sequence after the other, you know, th- there are films like that that I, I have enjoyed over the years. But this movie does have a plot, mm-hmm. and and even better than that, it seems weirdly ambitious. It's it's kind of punching above its weight a little bit and yes. trying to say something, uh, yes. which, which is always the coup de gras with a, a good B film. Right. I mean, so most slasher films, you know, the people involved know they're making trash. And and so the question is, are do they know how to make fun trash or do they end up making just boring, miserable trash? Uh, But no, in this case, you can it's quite clear that somebody involved at least thought they were making art. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's talk elevator pitch for this film. Uh, I was thinking 
Holidays with family are rough, especially when mom is psychic and your girlfriend is possessed by a samurai. Yeah, holiday family gatherings can be awkward enough already. Uh, it, it just gets worse when there's like a a, a a psychically projected ghost samurai running around slashing everybody's throat. Yeah, yeah. And mom's constantly eavesdropping on you through her psychic paintings that are uh-huh. <laughs> hung all over the house. Yes. All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer here. And I think we're going to, we may be playing the trailer in full because it has a wonderful grindhousey, like echo vibe to it. A ghost. A ghost. A devil. A devil. A poltergeist. A poltergeist. Call it what you will. What you will. It lives. Lives. Breathes. Breathes. You'll be paralyzed with fear as it kills, as it kills, as mutilates, mutilates anyone in its anyone in its tormented by a psychic power, psychic powers, blood beat, blood beat, a horrifying, horrifying yeah just sounds grimy was this can, the one that it, everything it says it says twice yes at least twice there's yeah, it's like this weird <laughs> echo thing and nice. it's like even even though you're you're out there listening to this podcast and you could not see the footage you probably had like audible uh, cigarette burns uh inside your your skull you know like you can imagine that sort of gritty uh you know it's an 83 film but still that you would get that kind of like 1970s grit on the footage this trailer has the sound of somebody uh getting a like beer that they snuck in in their boot out and and cracking it open in the dark absolutely All right, well, let's talk about the people. And again, I'm just going to you know, remind everyone that the connections on this are not going to be as robust as some of our other films, but uh, uh, it's still worth looking at, at who these folks were uh, and, and or are. Uh, so let's start at the top. Uh, the director, the writer, uh, also credits for music, film editing, and camera operation. Go to Fabrice Anguet Zaffaratos. Um, this is a French director who, prior to this, made the 1977 film uh, Le Grand Fremen, uh, The Large Farm, I believe that translates to, uh, which may or may not involve a motorcycle based on the cover art. Uh, Bloodbeat was his second film and his last film. He has some connection to um, Henri Zaffarados who produced and uh, directed and wrote and was very active in the, or reasonably active in the 60s and 70s. But this is a figure that I could not find any uh, English translations uh, regarding. Like, there seems to be, like, a French Wikipedia article about him, but Mm -hmm. I uh, I don't know that he's widely known outside of that. And and I'm not even sure that this is, in fact, our director of Bloodbeat's father, uh, but there seems to be some family connection there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe it's an uncle, I don't know. Um, 
But anyway, this film, Bloodbeat, for better or worse, is Zafiratos the Younger's vision. And his vision is weird. The film is certainly confusing. Um, it's ambitious. It's kind of, it's all over the place in some respects. Uh, but he was trying to say something, or at least was trying to rope all of this together into a narrative that made sense and said something, uh, though with varying degrees of success. Now, I mentioned that uh, he has a music credit, uh, so I just want to add a quick note on the music. The score here varies from works of classical music, including like, very well-known pieces like Karl Orff's uh, Carmina Burana uh-huh. is, is, yes. uh, is used uh, during the finale, for example. Uh-huh. And it, I, I just have to say that the use, especially of classical music, uh, but of all the music, is is actually one of the funniest and weirdest things about this movie. There are a number of scenes that are already strange, but they're pushed over the line by having m- music that feels like nobody else would select this this music to go with this scene. So like a scene of uh, characters sitting around on a couch just sort of being awkward, but it's mm-hmm. playing these like fast classical strings, like all these glissandi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? It just The music frequently does not match the tone of the scene or to the extent that it does, it's just heightening something uh, that, that feels kind of off about the scene. Yeah, and then they'll other times they'll throw in Gregorian chant. There's definitely yeah. a bit of that. Uh-huh. Uh, but then other times it gives you exactly what you might expect and hope for with a film of this caliber, and that is kind of amateur-esque uh, electronic music, um, which at times I think worked pretty well, especially when you got this kind of pulse-pounding electronic vibe going. Um, at, at least in a few scenes, it, it, it worked pretty well. A lot of the electronic music in this movie is what I would refer to. I, maybe there's another name for this that already exists, but what I would call boing boing music. <laughs> uh, this movie actually it contains a lot of synthesizers that sound like cartoon spring sound effects. You know, boing boing boing, and then uh, uh, and then uh, of course usually offset with the sound of heartbeats, which are used frequently in the soundtrack throughout the whole film. Now uh, you said heartbeats. I think you'll find that those are bloodbeats. Oh, excuse me. Yes, I I stand corrected. <laughs> All right. So we, we have a, a limited cast in this because it basically concerns uh, a boyfriend uh, bringing his girlfriend home to meet his family at Christmas. Let's start with the mom. The mom is Kathy, and she is played by Helen Bentone. Uh, dates unknown for her. This is her only film role, uh, but I thought she was mostly pretty good as the distracted art mom <laughs> who also has the shinning. Yeah, heavy shinning. I I don't know what an actor should have done with this role, but you know what? I'm I'm going to give credit to Helen Bentone because I mean, w- what's off about this role is all in the script. I mean, unless the actor was improvising, I don't think she was. So, uh, so this is a very weird character, but but I think Helen Bentone does does the best that could be done with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not one of those where you're you're gawking at her performance or anything and say, and wondering what she's doing. Like she's she's doing the best she can, clearly, and uh, a, yeah. a lot of the time it seems to work. All right, and then we also have Gary, who's mom's <laughs> boyfriend in this. Yes. And Gary is played by Terry Brown. Uh, this is a guy that's he's cut from the same raw block of masculinity uh, that uh, such figures as Rosdauer, uh, Rousdauer rather, from <laughs> Final Sacrifice was cut from. Yes, he's a he's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. He's uh, he's 
weathered by the northern plains and the, and the harsh winds. But at the same time, there's like a scene where he's laying shirtless in a bed and his skin is surprisingly smooth and youthful looking. It's very funny. <laughs> so the, the dates are unknown for the actor Terry Brown as well. But Brown actually pops up in some other films, uh, generally in much smaller roles. Uh, he mm-hmm. followed up Bloodbeat with 1991's Dark Rider starring Joe Estevez. Oh, boy. And you know it's good if it's got that Joe Estevez seal. Uh-huh. Um, and also he pops up uh, in a movie from 1992 uh, titled My Samurai. So there's two, two samurai films in, a, in what is, you know, very much a, a small uh, filmography. Uh, that film, by the way, had Mako and Terry O'Quinn in it. Ah, Terry O'Quinn. Yeah. Uh, Brown also pops up, I think, just bit parts in 1995's Copycat. He shows up on Nash Bridges and also The Princess Diaries. Okay. And uh, playing you know, Gary from Bloodbeat <laughs> in The Princess Diaries. As Gary, he's pretty good. Um he's believable as as this hunter guy, though there are times I don't know if you noticed this, but there are times where he has like he suddenly has to be emotional mm-hmm. and he just he, to to my eyes he just ratches it up way too far. Yes. Like suddenly he's just like he's like really animated and angry when the rest of the time he's he's pretty chill and laid back. I don't know if I'd say he's a good actor, but he's quite likable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's something naturally likable about the guy playing this role uh, that that shines through, and also makes his um, his moments of being kind of unreasonable and uh, upset not all that believable. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get back to the son. The son is Ted, played by James Fitzgibbons. Dates unknown. One of only two screen credits, and he looks kind of like a cross between Benedict Cumberbatch and Don Jr. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, uh, he he's got a look. Uh, he early in the movie, there's a scene where he's wearing a black sweater tucked into his jeans, and I was like, well, yeah, that's how I would just that's what I would use to describe his character. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, I kid, but eh, I think this actor's fine in this role. Like yeah. I. I bought into him being this this character and did not think much about this as a performance. And I guess the same could be said uh, for his sister, Dolly, you know, the character's sister, Dolly, played by mm-hmm. Dana Day. Date's unknown uh, for her as well, and this is her only film role. And then finally, we have Sarah, uh, who is Ted's poor girlfriend who has to come <laughs> out here into the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin and visit this family at Christmas. Uh, and she is played by Claudia Payton. Uh, Claudia Payton lived 1956 through 2012. This is her only film role. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think she was quite good in this as the the psionically and spiritually sensitive girlfriend having to visit her boyfriend's uh, family in rural Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, her obituary reveals that she was actually a, a pretty highly trained with a, an MA and several certificates in uh, the Alexander Technique, which I'm to understand is an uh, alternative therapy based in acting for actors. Uh, she attended Drama Studio London and seems to have taught acting in New York City and in Chicago uh, for a large part of her life. You know, also, I don't I don't know what she should have done with this character, but uh, but what she did was enjoyable, I guess, like in, in almost every shot of the movie. I mean, literally, I'd say 90 percent plus of the shots, in, including her face, mm-hmm. she's making an expression that sounds like it should be accompanied by a a vocalization kind of like uh, like she just looks perpetually in a in a state of uh near paralysis with awkward anxiety yeah yeah and and it and it i think it 
largely works because at heart, this is a film about feeling awkward at your your boyfriend's parents' house. Yes. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, we've, we've all been in some version of this scenario before. Many of us have been in some version of this scenario um, where you know the awkwardness that this film is is trying to portray and is ultimately based entirely around. You know, like that is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they say, you know, um, go with what you know, uh, you know, make sure there's this core of truth to your strange speculative story. Well, this is the, this is the core of truth to this motion picture. Sure enough. Now, now, what happens here? Are we going to try to explain the plot? I guess there will be spoilers. There probably have already been spoilers, but I, yeah. I don't know if it makes a difference. No, no. I think you can you can go into this one spoiled, and it's still going to perplex you. Okay, well, are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, so the first thing we get is Boing Boing music, uh, like I was talking about earlier. And, you know, the title, it looks like it would be a nice logo for a board game. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah. It's like Bloodbeat from Milton Bradley. Uh-huh. It's got it's got a nice font and then blood dripping down the letters and then it's got a cartoon dagger stabbing into the D in the word blood. Uh though I wonder why it's a dagger. This dagger I'm pretty sure does not feature in the movie. The, this should have been a katana. Yeah, it should it should have been. Like that's the whole thing. It's a, a killer psychic samurai with a, a a real I think it's supposed to be real or it becomes real katana. So when things actually get going in the movie with with live action, we see shots of a peaceful forest in winter. And you've got, you know, the trees are bare, dead leaves covering the land. And we see an icy stream winding its way through moss-covered rocks and fallen limbs. It's very nice. But then also really loud, intrusive synth melodies uh, of a kind of nursery rhyme music box uh, variety. Mm-hmm. And then we see a hunter. So he's this figure creeping through the forest at a rapid pace and he's wearing camo heavy leather boots uh he's carrying a big compound bow and he is listening to a walkman he's got like a portable cassette player with headphones i don't know is that normal for hunters maybe i don't know i mean uh, i mean what one imagines it's ario speedwagon playing on the uh the walkman i don't know why no i think it's diegetic music he's listening to the boing boing music that's where it's coming from And so we see him, you know, he catches sight of something, he kneels, he draws back an arrow, he shoots at something, and then, you know, the, clearly he made the kill. Uh, So we cut straight to a pickup truck arriving back home at a uh, a house, kind of like a a farmhouse out in the, the, the frozen wasteland of Wisconsin. And uh, there's a woman in a colorful shawl standing in the doorway. So this is Kathy. This is the mom. And uh, everything up to this point has had kind of a a strange, ominous tone, but it's very much broken when the hunter, who turns out to be her boyfriend, Gary, starts talking. He gets out of the car and then he's immediately he has the energy of uh, a kid wanting to show you the the fort they made in the woods. He's Mm -hmm. like, all right, honey, I got one. Come look. And he's like (laughs) bent over and running around real fast. Mm hmm. Uh, And so Kathy comes to look at the deer in the bed of the pickup truck, but then she immediately has some kind of psychic reaction and, you know, she's like, oh, and she backs up and, and he's all, you know, startled by this. He's like, hey, you know, you've seen me show up with lots of dead deer before. Is, Is this a migraine? And she seems to agree. 
Um, and they go back inside and there's a nice little breakfast table scene though, uh, in the, the first of many, uh, this will be, the scene will be strangely accented by classical strings, apparently playing on the radio. Uh, and then in the, the foreground, we'll get a strong performance by a box of Kellogg's all bran and a prominent tub of Skippy, which I think is peanut butter. Now that you present me with a still of this, I mean, this is a complete breakfast he's about to have there. It looks like two slabs of quiche uh, on a plate. Multiple bowls are prepared. Multiple uh, mugs and cups are arranged around him. Like this is this is quite a spread. That's not even the whole. That's just at Gary's place at the table. So, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it looks like Gary is having waffles, quiche, two bowls of cereal, two cups of coffee, maybe a bowl of peanut butter. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, But so anyway, this is Kathy and Gary. The hunter is is the boyfriend, Gary. And uh, we, we find out the situation is they're about to have Kathy's kids up to visit the house for Christmas. And Gary wants to surprise the kids by telling them that he and Kathy are going to get married. He's he's uh, he's being all sweet, but Kathy is not in favor. Uh, she's like, I've told you so many times, I don't want to get married again. And then this makes Gary upset, and he goes outside to gut a deer. Uh, warning, by the way, I mean, obviously this is an R-rated movie with all kinds of content, but uh, if you're bothered by realistic-looking depictions of uh, animal gutting, this looks like a, a real deer gutting to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, this this looks like a real dead deer. So he's out doing that, and then some kids arrive. Uh, now, at first, I could not tell who was who, who were Kathy's kids. Um, but it, So Kathy's kids are the son named Ted, and then the daughter named Dolly, and then there's also Sarah in the car who is Ted's uh, – he introduces her as his friend. She's his girlfriend. And so they arrive to find Gary gutting the deer and then he's all excited to see them arrive and he just hugs them without washing his hands. He's just got deer guts everywhere and he's mm-hmm. just grabbing them. Um, I, I've got multiple stills of that for you to look at here, Rob, with the deer hanging in the background and him being like, oh, so good to see you. He's just getting blood on their coats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and from uh, like I said, from the moment we meet Sarah, she seems totally uncomfortable. She she's making the <laughs> face and uh, it's kind of Marge Simpson noise uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, energy. And uh, and oh boy, just from from the first moment of contact between Sarah and Kathy, there is some kind of psychic friction. Like they meet face to face, and then these Geiger counter sound effects start firing off. Uh, so, uh, so at this point I was like, okay, it looks like we have at least two psychic characters here, or at least the mom is psychic and senses something about the new girlfriend. Right. And then this is great too, because it's like it, the, the movie is saying, uh, mom does not trust your girlfriend. And, and it's also saying your girlfriend is highly suspicious of your mom. And, uh, and I, I think these two, um, feelings and very variations on them, uh, will ring true to a lot of people, you know, especially when you're dealing with a, a, a first a family meeting like this. It's tr- what this movie lacks in many kinds of verisimilitude. It does achieve, uh, uh awkward family gathering verisimilitude. <laughs> Uh, so they go inside and Gary's washing the mammal guts off his hands after he's touched like four people at least. And then uh, Ted is showing Sarah around the house and he's like, oh, you know, you've got the Christmas tree. You've got his gun. He's like, here's my gun. And then you've got uh, Kathy's unsettling abstract paintings all over the walls that look like 
you know, blood stains and, and, uh, rifts in the subconscious and, uh, you know, fissures out of which demons erupt. And, uh, again, we see some kind of intangible, uh, mind connection between Kathy and Sarah because Sarah looks at Kathy's paintings and she's, she's uh, kind of spacing out, staring at them. Yeah, and there's some nice, almost uh, like Dario Argento-esque shots of her, like, staring with the painting frame behind her. Um, you know, and I guess it's accentuated, too, by this kind of, like, early 80s hairstyle, etc. Right, and so Ted's over here uh, obliviously fiddling with his rifle. I don't know why he's doing that. And he's complaining that he doesn't get to do any hunting when he's away at school. So I guess he's supposed to be in college, I think. Yeah, and he's just, you know, he's excited to be home, where with Gary, anyway, it seems like it's just hunting 24-7. Like, he's been out hunting all morning, and he's going to go do it again. You know, those those shirts that say, I'd rather be fishing, uh, Ted's would say, I'd rather be hunting with mom's boyfriend. (laughs) Uh, But then things start getting strange because there is a present waiting for Sarah under the Christmas tree. But how could that be? Because Ted didn't tell anyone about Sarah. They didn't know about her. They didn't know she was coming. So how did Kathy know to get her a present? Well, Kathy just says, uh, a mother knows everything. And everybody's like, well, okay. (laughs) Is there ever any payoff with that? Do we find out what the gift was? I don't think so, no. Okay. Unless it was the samurai armor that shows up later. I mean, you know, I I mean, watching this film, I'm guessing it's just like Bath and Body Works soap, you know, some sort of... uh, just just generic soap gift that mom had on hand uh-huh. and she's just covering it. it's like oh yeah i got your gift it's like a doll version of sarah with a bunch of needles stuck in it <laughs> or that yeah yeah one of the two extremes uh, things just keep getting weirder though so ted is showing uh sarah to the guest room and it, well so first of all i got to say about this room this is something i never figured out the whole movie is there just this narrow pole running from floor to ceiling in the middle of this room? There are some interesting um, features in this house that become apparent in some shots that make me wonder uh, about like the era during which this house was built or just sort of like older Wisconsin houses in general. Because there's one where we clearly see some sort of vent on the floor that uh, that I guess opens up into the room beneath it. As hmm. if there were like yeah. vents included to make sure that heat rose like through the floor into the upper floor. So I don't know. Uh, people who live in old Wisconsin creepy houses, uh, write in and let us know what some of this is about. I don't know what this pole is because it doesn't look wide enough to be a load bearing pole. It looks it's like about the the diameter of like a you know, length of rebar, except it goes from the floor to the ceiling right in the middle of the room. Like it looks like you would run straight into it getting up to go to the bathroom in the night. Hmm. I I mean, my only guess is some sort of like temporary support strut for a, a ceiling that needs to be uh, repaired. And maybe they were shooting in an old house. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, once we're in the room, Sarah starts having hallucinations. She's seeing everything in like uh, in photo negative, these, these rose colored uh, textures. And she's, I think, hallucinating the sound of a baby crying. Meanwhile, Ted is telling this weird story in the background about how did you. So I think he says there used to be a friend of Kathy's who lived in this room. And he says, quote, he was some psychoanalyst or something like that. Meditation, he called it. One day he just packed up and left just a few lines on a piece of paper. And that was it. Uh, And I don't think we ever get any more explanation about that or that it ever comes up again. But it makes me wonder, is this guy connected to the samurai at all? 
This movie loves to throw out um, tantalizing clues that are never enough for us to form any kind of concrete um, hypothesis about what what's going yeah. on. You know, like it's just enough to make you think. Well, maybe maybe the the director writer here does know what all this connects to, but also makes you suspect that perhaps he does not. Yeah. Uh, so Ted and Sarah, they get into an uncomfortable makeout session and then uh, they start having a conversation in the middle of that about how uh, Sarah's like, your mom is making me uncomfortable. It's like she's in the room right now with us. And Ted's like, ah, that's ridiculous. She's she's painting. She's off painting somewhere. And meanwhile, it keeps hilariously cutting to Kathy in her art studio, just mm-hmm. making the psychic uh, hourglass cursor face. You know, she's just in, in error message mode. Uh, <laughs> I guess presumably psychically spying on the... I don't know. So I think... One of the lessons of this movie is that if your boyfriend is ever like, don't worry, my mom is not spying on us right now with Stargate brain, don't believe him. That's right. Yeah. I mean, for all its pretensions, 80% of this movie is about the fear that mom can hear you and your girlfriend making out in your old room. Ugh. Uh, but I think this is the point where we, we cut to some driving, right? Oh, yeah. Be- so it's just like, okay, next day. How about next day? Uh, and the next morning, we see a truck. At first, I thought this was Gary, but it's not Gary. It's somebody else driving a pickup truck with a camper top on it, uh, just flooring it. They're like on the radio. I think they're on a CB saying Red Baron to Lone Painter. I, I don't know what any of this means, but we see the, the truck is literally getting like airtime going over hills. It's like flying up off as if off of a ramp. Yeah, it's just a totally unnecessary vehicular stunt just thrown uh-huh. in. Like there's I mean, we get that that Uncle Pete is eager to get to the hunt. Like a, somewhere a deer is breathing and it must be hunted. Uh-huh. Um and 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 hunting is is all the fun in these parts. Uh but was it necessary for the truck to be airborne? Very good. Yeah, I don't know. This movie in general does a bizarre job of introducing the character of Uncle Pete because you meet him without seeing his face. You just hear his voice and you see his car and then you never see his face until minutes later. Like the characters talk about him arriving and he arrives, but you never get a close shot of him. And then in the next scene, he's just sort of in it. But like, usually when there's a new character, you will get a head on shot of it. So you can see their face and what they look like this movie. Nope. It's just, okay. Uncle Pete's in the mix. Now, I guess you'll figure out which one he is. Yeah. They don't really make you um, anticipate uncle Pete in any way. You're not really looking forward to meeting him. There's not, you know, there are no stories about him. Um, I mean, he clearly really floors it uh, when he's driving around. But aside from that, there's nothing to really make you want to meet him. And then when he shows up, there's not really any fanfare either. Uh, But so you're right. Uncle Pete is he's he's obsessed with deer hunting, apparently. So they all want to go out hunting in the woods. And they do. I think basically everybody except Kathy, the mom, goes deer hunting. Um, And there there were several. I got to admit, I don't know much about hunting. I've never been hunting. And so I, I clearly don't have any expertise. But some things about this seemed implausible to me like is it normal to go bow hunting on horseback in the woods and where did all the horses come from and uh if if there's a part where they have to be like crawling on their bellies under barbed wire fences which makes me think are they supposed to be there maybe they're trespassing uh and i could be wrong but it looked like one character is carrying a lever action rifle uh is that normal for deer hunting I, i don't know 
Yeah, like they're they're doing a mix of of bow hunting and rifle hunting for the deer, which yeah. I, I guess could be a thing. But I always again, I I, I grew up with bows and and rifles around, but I, I never went hunting. But I remember you know you would have the like bow hunting season and yeah musket ball season or whatever, and then there's rifles like uh, so I I was under the assumption that like that like bow and rifle hunters would not just mix like this that it, you were either going to do one or the other. Well, not just they're not just in the same hunting party. There's when they draw a bead on a deer, there's a scene of all four hunters aiming at the same deer. So two bows and two rifles all drawn down on this one doe. It's it's enough to it, it's, it's enough to make you wonder like if this, this is a case of like an outsider, uh, you know, in this case a French director trying to figure out what would be the authentic Wisconsin um, you know, a uh, slice of life scenario uh-huh. and getting some things right, but maybe getting some things wrong just because, you know, just coming at it from a, from an outsider perspective. Well, I mean, I got to admit again, I like, I don't really know anything about hunting. Maybe you would do this, but it did, it certainly looked weird having this like four person firing squad for deer. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Hunters write in and let us know. But but we're focusing on the you know the the the, the details of the hunt here. But yes. this is also one of the best sequences in the film. Uh, yeah, at least yeah. it genuinely building up suspense because poor Sarah has been brought on this this trip. I think a, a lot of us can can sympathize with her. You know, here she's 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 hanging out with um, <laughs> with this family that she's only with just Uncle met. Pete. Yeah, yeah, and they brought her now on a hunting trip, and <laughs> she's she's uncomfortable. Uh, oh, she yeah. doesn't want to be there. She, I, she definitely does not want to shoot a deer. Uh, but yet here she is, and we hear that music building up, right? And we hear that heartbeat, that blood beat, uh, and it. I felt like it, it genuinely built up tension in a nice way. Yeah, she. Well, she's gone from. This is one of her few scenes where uh, she's not extremely apprehensive, and instead, she, here I would say she looks soul annihilatingly bored. Uh, just like she's staring into space with, uh, you know, the expression of, of having been waiting in line at a bank for seven hours. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, and that's probably what hunting is like if you're not like really into it, right? It is a lot of waiting around. I understand. Yes. I, I can imagine uh, if you're not into it, it would be quite boring, but, but she goes from the boredom to, like you're saying, when they're drawing down on this, this deer, you know, yeah, it builds up the tension. Uh, there's the heartbeat sound effect, and and uh, and, and and like you say, this the sequence is quite good. But then, right before they shoot, Sarah suddenly stands up. She turns green and red. She screams, and they all miss. And then she runs away. Uh, so immediately, everybody is uh, like Uncle Pete's mad, and then Ted goes running off after her, and she sort of meanders through the woods until. I had to rewind this part. I was like, did I miss something? But no, mm-hmm. she just randomly collides with another guy that we have not met before. Am I correct? This is a totally new character. Right. I had to do the same thing. I thought I'd missed something that I was looking down at my screen or something. Uh, so I backed it up as well. But no, she just suddenly runs into a guy, totally new character, but but very much dressed like all the other locals. Yes, but he, but this guy, but he's not like a new character we're about to meet. He's dying, so he's mm-hmm. been gutted. But somebody turned his stomach into a jack o' lantern, and he's covered in blood. And I guess for the second time today, Sarah is going to get a man with bloody hands, just like grabbing her jacket, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then so this guy just dies there. He just kind of looks like a a, a blonder Robert Redford ish kind of guy, uh, yeah. and he he's dead there on the forest floor. 
Oh, and then there's a there's a scene with the cops that I thought was funny because really the only thing that happens in it is they just repeatedly establish that nobody knew who this guy was. <laughs> Which seems weird, right? Like that yeah. just raises more questions. Um, I guess maybe it's uh, you don't have to spend as much dialogue establishing the fact. But so anyway, they get back home and then uh, there there is mounting tension with the family because uh, as with the earlier scenes, Sarah is bothered by uh, – well, by the experience in the woods but then also by Ted's mother. He's – you know, he's like – uh, he's like, oh, don't worry about anything. But she's like, no, your mother, she makes me uncomfortable. And I think she thinks that Kathy is spying on her through the paintings in the mm-hmm. bedroom, like that the paintings function like psychic CCTV cameras. Yeah. And so she has Ted remove the paintings from the bedroom. Uh, but then we find out that the apprehension goes both ways because Ted goes down to Kathy's painting studio and there, Ted is having this conversation with his mom, and she warns him about Sarah. She's like, I just want you to be careful. There's something about her. I've seen her before. I don't understand it, but I know her. Meanwhile, Gregorian chants in the background. And this is another case of, of hints at connections that are never fully established. <laughs> uh, but, but keep us watching. Now, somewhere around here is where there's a scene where Ted and Dolly are playing Monopoly, but there's a cat lying on the Monopoly board and just flopping all around on it, which is excellent. Yep, solid slice of life right there. Uh, But I think here is the scene where the movie just starts to really escalate the weirdness and sort of never stops until the end. So here, uh, Sarah is lying in bed and Kathy's painting and simultaneously, they start having psychic experiences. Like Kathy starts having a, a Danny Torrance Red Rum style psychic episode. Uh, she's like uh, uh, sort of groaning and 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 wiggling and uh, and drawing uncontrollably on her on her uh, uh, on her canvas, I guess, with a, her non dominant hand. And then meanwhile, uh, Sarah up in the bedroom finds a treasure chest full of samurai armor and a katana <laughs> next to the bed. And does the thing that people always do in movies when they find a blade, test to see if it's sharp and cut their fingers. Why every movie? Why do people do this? People don't do this very often in real life. Yeah, um, it's uh, I mean, I think obviously from the, the movie perspective, it's because you get to have a little blood in there and because it's the little things that we can feel. Uh, someone gets their arm lopped off with a samurai sword. We can't compare to that. But if somebody like touches the edge of it too much. Um, you know, or gets a paper cut, uh, you know, that can ick us out. And so, you know, for, in a way of like keeping the audience engaged and, and physically invested in the film, that's a mm-hmm. solid choice. But yeah, who does this? Who picks up the sword and starts running their finger across it? Well, I mean, I can even touch the blade of a knife to see how sharp it is without cutting myself. This is like, I would assume a skill anybody who can handle a knife has. But we have to remember, as, as will soon be established, this is a suit of armor that nobody knew was in the house, perhaps uh-huh. wasn't in the house, perhaps has been physically manifested by stuff that's happening now uh, involving these two psychic characters or psychic storms going on in the general vicinity. I don't know. And and then the sequence just goes on for minutes at a time of nonstop weirdness. Uh there's some strange – I don't even remember what's going on. There's a confrontation between Gary and Kathy where he's like, what do you think I am, some piece of plastic? 
uh, he says, I'm a simple man. I need love and affection. Yeah. Yeah. This is the section of the film where they decided we need to explore their characters more. We need uh-huh. to get into uh, mom and Gary's relationship. Um, yeah. And then, and this is also one of those moments where he's, he's, he's play he's a bit over the top in his anger uh, that feels out of keeping with his character as well as his, uh, what he does afterwards. Cause he basically is like, have a nice life, Kathy. Um, and uh-huh. then he storms out and you assume if you say something like that, He's like you're going to, you're going yeah. to get in the car and go, but no, he goes into the living room, puts his headphones on and what starts playing a video game or watching TV or He's something. He's watching TV. He's like watching a small TV with headphones plugged into it. Like, uh, like, is that, I think you have to leave the house after you say those things, Gary. I don't think you can just go watch television. Not only did he doesn't even leave, he doesn't even go into a room by himself. He goes into the room where everybody is sitting and then everybody's <laughs> sitting in the same room, mm-hmm. just doing their own thing. And, and we, there are shots of them just sitting around on the couches and stuff and playing this deranged string music. Yeah. Oh, and then Kathy comes in too. It's like, so yeah. whatever this blow up was between them, I guess it wasn't that big a deal. Maybe this is just, this is just a Tuesday for them. Yeah. And then also with, in one of the extremely abrupt cuts, we cut to Uncle Pete has wrecked his truck on the side of the road. I had no idea what Uncle Pete was doing before this, uh, but this is our first murder scene. Suddenly he's just there. He's like radioing for help. Uh, and then I think he's trying to change a tire and we get this movie's, uh, of course, the movie's uh, key, 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 ah, 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 is just synth drone and mm-hmm. the heartbeat, excuse me, blood beat sound effects. <laughs> and so he's doing, he's doing his tire and his throat gets slashed. So the movie has shifted into slasher mode. Uh, so then we randomly cut to two new characters who I'm pretty sure we have never met before. Uh, both in bathrobes, the dude of this couple is very dub airs. He's, uh, he's wearing a trucker hat in bed and they're on a water bed and he demands, he demands his wife bring him tea. He wants hot tea on the water bed, which, and then she actually puts the tray down on the water bed. And I was like yelling at the screen. That is a scalding waiting to happen. Doesn't he also then request orange juice? Yeah. <laughs> She she's like, do you want anything else? He's like, no, just the tea. And then she brings it, and then he's like, hey, what about my orange juice? <laughs> I mean, I, I get it that it's winter in Wisconsin, and perhaps they have gas furnace going here, and you know, you need to be hydrated. But but who's having orange juice and tea in bed in a water bed <laughs> at night? Yeah, this be- see, oh, maybe he was topping off the water bed. It, maybe it's full of hot tea. <laughs> <laughs> and then the dog joins him on the bed. Oh, yeah. Well, I got to admit, it does look super cozy. So he's there in his <laughs> flannel robe with his hat on in bed, in the water bed with his dog. Like literally, he's like spooning his dog with his <laughs> arm around it, reading a newspaper with a tray of hot tea and cookies. And uh, it, it, it does look extremely cozy. I don't know where she's going to fit into the bed, though. Um, but then while she's in the kitchen getting his orange juice, suddenly, uh, she gets attacked by a random unseen figure. Uh, but I guess it's not going to be random. It's going to be our, our movie slasher. Uh, so she gets her throat slashed and then, uh, Da Bear's dude is trying to figure out what happened. So he goes into the kitchen, finds her dead. Then he is chased. Uh, he, this is a, a strangely extended chase sequence like he jumps through a glass window Mm -hmm. uh runs through a giant barn gets in a van drives to a service station finds no help is is pursued still drives away runs out of gas ends up running up at at kathy's house 
Um, and then meanwhile, inside, uh, Kathy is having more of her psychic error message face. And uh, Sarah is having some kind of bizarre erotic experience while hallucinating about these samurai murders. I, very weird. Yeah. Uh, but like she's do, having an erotic re- reaction to the psychic energy of samurai ghost thing killing people or yes. her erotic energy is feeding the psychic the samurai. I don't know. I can just imagine audiences in 1982 being like, oh, see, this is a sophisticated artistic French thing. <laughs> I have to throw in something else about uh, the the Bears guy here. Uh, I I did not include information on the actor who who plays him, but it's kind of a tour de force, uh, especially when he's running, because most of this 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 sequence is him in an open bathrobe, uh, like wearing uh, just like tidy whitey underwear and I think some sort of like small T-shirt or undershirt. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then w- when he finally gets to the house, of course, the samurai kills him right outside. But then he's poking his head through the door and he's covered in blood and he's like, oh, and, and this is actually the first time where we, we see that the slasher is, in fact, wearing samurai armor. It's a samurai with the sword and a bow. Yeah. And at this point, things just go completely off the rails. It's full poltergeist. The the pantry doors are flapping mad. The dirty dishes are dancing. Quaker oats and butternut containers are shaking violently in the cupboard. Uh, the uh, the 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 telephone catches on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary in the kitchen is hilariously pelted with foodstuffs and kitchen utensils until unconscious. Like yep. he takes one too many packets of ramen to the head and he falls over, uh, just conked out. And then, uh, oh God, what, what else is it? Oh yeah, Ted and Dolly are upstairs. They're trying to, I think, see what's going on with Sarah, but her room is glowing blue. Uh, so I guess they decide they can't get in. And then they get like psychically blasted into a closet and the windows are raising up and down. Like the windows are laughing and, uh, and Kathy is having some kind of psychic exorcism thing going on. She's going like, who are you? What do you want here? And and red light is shooting out of her hands. And I think she successfully exercises the samurai ghost for the time being. I think so. There are a couple of, of moments where they kind of get temporary victories over the samurai ghost before it comes back in force. Right. And and things just get more and more confusing. Like, so in the aftermath of this whole attack, they're talking about what's going on. And Kathy says, um, he would never take me away from you and he would never take you and Dolly away from me. But it, did you understand who she was talking about? I don't think the movie makes that clear at all. At first I thought maybe she just, she meant like God or something, but mm-hmm. I think she, she was supposed to be referring to an unseen character, but I no clue who it's supposed to be. Yeah. At this point in the film, there, are, I think there are a couple of times where they allude to like him or in a way that indicates that they might be referring to the, to the same person, like as if the samurai or the thing behind the samurai or some, something is, is somebody that they would all know or had a history of, but they never actually dish out enough information for us to piece it together. Uh, now, somehow from here, we get to hunters in the woods sitting around a campfire playing the harmonica with a case mm-hmm. of Budweiser. And of course, even uh, however uh, unusual this movie is, the logic of the horror genre holds true, which is that a group of guys sitting around a campfire in a horror movie that you've never met before, uh, they are doomed. <laughs> they will definitely die, almost certainly beginning with one who walks away from the fire to urinate, which uh, in fact holds true in this case every time it's a guarantee 
Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happens. Uh, and I guess part of it is like you're building up your 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 character. You're building up your your slasher enemy. Uh, they you just realize well he needs more kills. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to you know power him up here. So let's just throw in three new characters for him to massacre. Now I think the the director was still trying to play with some weird like uh, sex death thing here. So this is like intercut with a sex scene with with Ted and Sarah. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then and then things just keep escal like it just gets weirder and weirder like every ten seconds from this point on. Yeah, the last twenty minutes or so of this film, it's like approaching the speed of light. You yeah. feel like you might not actually ever get there, and everything just breaks down as far as logic and reason go. There's some kind of brief psychic battle between Dolly and Kathy. No indication so far that Dolly had psychic powers, but mm-hmm. she like goes in to talk to her mom and she's like, don't come into my mind. Stop it. And they're, they're going like at each other's heads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Making scanner face a bit there. Yeah. Scanner facing at each other. Um, and then, uh, oh, there, there's a scene of Ted in the woods with the rifle crying. And then Gary's riding a horse And then Dolly's in the woods and she turns into some kind of blue and red nightmare. And then the samurai appears and is like reaching out to Dolly and talking to her. I I didn't quite understand what was happening there. Yeah. And then they, um, what they're able to to actually bash the physical samurai, right? Gary is. Yeah. So Gary's got a maul that he was splitting wood with and he swings the maul at the samurai's head and hits it, but it just collapses into a pile of armor. Like it was empty. Mm. This, this physical set of armor that that just manifested in the house, and the, the, and Dolly reacts to this by saying, "Mom was right," but I was like, "About what?" <laughs> yeah, again, alluding to something, uh, but I, I'm not sure how to put these puzzle pieces together. Uh, but then back at the house. Uh, <laughs> It's just, it's difficult to convey how weird the energy of this scene is. So Gary's got the samurai armor and he's, he's taking it to show it to Kathy and she's just like, burn it. It's evil. And he's like, no, I have to take it to the police. And Dolly's saying, bring me some candy bars. <laughs> and, then, and then there's a photo on a desk of a child. And I don't know who it's supposed to no, be. No and, idea. and Sarah burns the photo with pyrokinesis. And then Basically, the movie from here escalates into a a series of psychic power fights. Remember, the only person who we had any indication before this part was psychic was the mom and, and Sarah, maybe Sarah. But now it's like everybody but Gary has psychic powers. So uh, Sarah appears in samurai armor, and then this is intercut with stock footage of World War II. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Carl Orth is just blaring. Yes, Car- yeah, Carmina Piranha. Da, 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 da. And there's a psychic battle between uh between Kathy and the the Sarah in samurai form. The samurai f- wins. Uh she like stabs uh Kathy and Gary and then there's another psychic battle between Ted and Dolly and the samurai and they win. So I guess Ted and Dolly had psychic powers all along and we just never that was never mentioned before. Never came up, no. <laughs> and then Ted and Dolly walk out of the house and that's the end. Yeah, that's the end of the movie. Yeah, and then we're just left to to try and piece it together, which uh, which ultimately, you know, it, it's it's you know, there's something about a film that sticks with you. There are a lot of films. There there are a lot of arguably better films than this that I've I've seen and I immediately forget. Like I I don't wake up the next morning and ponder them. Uh, yeah. But I've I've been thinking on and off about Bloodbeat ever since I watched it the other day. 
And, um, and so I've been trying to, to sort of put together uh, answers for, like, for, for the basic question here. What the heck was the deal with that samurai ghost? Why is there a samurai yeah. ghost in Wisconsin haunting this family, sort of? Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't look long and hard for an official answer to this. Uh, but according to Michael uh, Gingold of Rue Morgue, uh, the director's answer to this in an interview on one of the, on, on the uh, Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray is essentially, um, why not? Like, why a samurai ghost in Wisconsin? Why not? So, um, I don't know. That's, that's not a great answer. Uh, and I think we can go a lot, a lot deeper. So, on one hand, um, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, is this a Japanese poltergeist? Is this the spirit of a long dead warrior and he's somehow reincarnated through Sarah or awakened by mom's psychic powers or art? Uh, did mom have some prior connection to the spirit? Um, and then we can throw in all these additional questions like, who's the little girl we keep seeing? Uh, where does the physical armor come from? Is it actually hidden there or did it just manifest? Uh, why are we seeing these flashes of World War II footage? That seems yeah. to be important. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say showing stock footage of a of a war intercut with a scene that that seems to be trying to make a connection. So I have two theories. Okay. One, and I should drive home. Neither of these is really supported by the text, so I'm really I'm really going out there trying to to make these work. Okay. So first of all, could this vengeful Japanese ghost be somehow connected to the U.S. internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War? I, I would see no indication of that in the movie. No indication in the movie, but I believe Fort McCoy in Wisconsin was one of the facilities used in this uh, shameful chapter of American history. Uh, and it also was used to house Japanese prisoners of war. So um, if we're, we're going to really uh, cut this film a lot of slack, we might say maybe that's what it was going for. And I'll say... If that sounds even remotely interesting, uh, there's a much better supernatural treatment of, a, of, of the subject matter in season two of AMC's The Terror. My other theory here is that the psychic samurai ghost is in fact an egregore, a powerful, non-physical entity that arises from a group of people, an occult concept similar in some ways to that of a tulpa. Huh. I, now, I what don't think I made, know about this. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't familiar with it until I was reading some uh, Grant Morrison, because Grant Morrison makes use of this concept, uh, this occult concept in uh, this DC supervillain character that he, that he either created or riffed heavily on uh, called the Candlemaker, who's said to be a powerful egregore born out of humanity's collective unconscious tensions surrounding 20th century anxieties over nuclear war. Hmm. So... Along those lines, could the psychic ghost samurai in this picture be an egregore born out of American tension and shame uh, concerning Japanese internment and the use of atomic weaponry during the Second World War? The only thing to indicate that, though, would be the would be the like the the intercutting with the scenes from the war in that very final scene. Like there's nothing at all earlier in the movie to point in that direction. Yeah, like there's no. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything in the house that shows any uh, aside from the armor that again is implied to just physically manifest and have no previous history in the house. There's nothing in there to indicate the family has any connections to Japanese culture, to Japanese history. You know, it's not, nothing like oh well, that's that's Grandpa's photo. He fought in the war and was convicted of war crimes or something, right? This would be very loose, but there are some what appear to be. Uh Buddhist or Buddhist suggestive artworks in the house. Like there, I, I think, am I right about this? Weren't there? Uh, yeah, some, that like, is true. Yeah. Yeah. Like Kathy, AKA mom has kind of this, um, 
you know, kind of like um, more of a hippie, free, free-form artistic spirit that's just kind uh-huh. of captured in the wild, you know, that's kind of out of keeping with the, the, the rural environment around her. Uh, so I guess you but could I say— But I don't know what that would mean either. Yeah. Unless, like, the statue was, like, it, there, there does, yeah, the stuff is just part of the, the backdrop. It doesn't seem to play any real significant role in the subsequent haunting or psychic explosion that occurs. I mean, all I can say is that I think the intercutting with the scenes of World War II is supposed to suggest something, but I can't form anything coherent about it that really connects with anything else in the movie. Yeah. But it, it all, like, there's, it almost makes sense in a way that is, um, that that really you know pulls at your your brain strings you know like you can't quite get it out of your mind like what was it it's almost saying something coherently or semi coherently uh, and I just can't make out what it might be saying. Well, you know, I I think I've said on the show before that I, I sometimes have a uh, probably an unusually high tolerance for unanswered questions in in fiction and movies. I mean, I I often think that it's uh it's better to leave things a mystery than to answer them in an unsatisfying way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, sometimes you can just leave people hanging too much. Like, I feel like the, if if the director truly had something like that in mind, you, you, you could have put a few more pointers in there. Yeah. I guess what we're trying to say is Bloodbeat, uh, it's a Christmas miracle. Oh, yeah, Christmas. I forgot about that part. <laughs> That's why you picked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I really didn't do a lot of thinking about, like, what is this saying about Christmas? I guess it's not really saying anything about Christmas. But it takes place at Christmas. Uh, Christmas is the reason uh, for these people coming together and psychically manifesting a, a samurai warrior to kill everybody. So, yeah, I got to say, I... I on the whole, I enjoyed it. I'm certainly not bored, but this is one of the most befuddling films we have we have watched for this show yet. <laughs> I agree. So uh, out there, you might be wondering, well, how can I get on this in on this holiday befuddlement? Well, um, this movie is out there if you're looking for it. Uh, I streamed it on Shutter. Uh, and I think it may be available via some other uh, online services as well. It was also released on Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome a few years back. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, that actually includes an interview with the director. Uh, so if you're really curious, maybe you can you can get your hands on that disc and may, maybe even answer some of these questions that we have. I, I don't know, but uh, I'm guessing probably not. But yeah, I, I would say, I still go back to what we said earlier. I, I, am, I admire the ambition here because, you know... A lesser, uh, you know, director and writer might have just said, "Hey, we're going to have some a crazy person in a samurai uh, a suit of samurai armor is going to start killing people, and that's all you need to know. Just somebody was crazy, and they put on some, some you know, armor and grabbed a sword, and you know, th- that's it. Uh, but no, this film went for something far more elaborate, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it's one of the things that makes it interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely the only Franco Wisconsinite." psychic uh art house christmas slasher movie i've ever seen (laughs) all right well if you want to check out other episodes of weird house cinema you can catch it every friday in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed we're primarily a science and culture podcast with episodes on tuesdays and thursdays but uh we do listener mail on mondays we do a short form artifact episode on wednesdays and on friday that's our time to set most serious matters of uh, uh aside and just get into a little weird house cinema Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 